what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. If you don't see results, you didn't want it bad enough. That's become the prevailing narrative of the online business refund policy. Now, sure, it's nearly impossible to guarantee results. And there are reasons to remind customers and clients that no matter what they've bought, they're going to have to put some time and effort into it. But all around the internet, in every type of business model, every field, every kind of brand, I see evidence of an increasingly adversarial relationship with customers. It's as if online business owners believe that they've generously shared their secret wisdom or technique for the low, low price of $19.97, that is $1,997, and the customer should just be grateful for the opportunity to pay them. If someone asks for a refund, well, they didn't try hard enough. They're conning you, or they don't understand how hard it is to be an entrepreneur. The customer has become the enemy. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy with your humanity intact. Today, the philosophy of guarantees and refunds is just one part of a larger adversarial philosophy of small business. We seem to be looking for structural ways to justify that the customer is always wrong. So on this episode, I want to explore the origin of refunds, how early marketers, and I mean early, thought about them, and then offer some present day analysis about why many business owners are so quick to assume the worst about their potential or actual customers. Plus, I'll offer some ideas for new ways to think about your guarantees or refund policies. But first, I want to know, when did refunds and return policies become a thing? This episode is the first in a new series we're calling Context Clues. My goal is to provide the history, philosophy, and strategy behind some of the aspects of business building we take for granted. I've got episodes coming up on direct response marketing, doing what you love, positive thinking, and affiliate marketing. If you enjoy the series, please share it with a friend. Guaranteed to delight you or your money back. Pillow Pet. Pillow Pets come with a full 60-day money-back guarantee. Guaranteed to delight you or your money back. Offering refunds and maintaining a return policy hasn't always existed, right? Someone had to come up with the idea that you could reduce the friction of a purchase by telling the buyer that they could return the item if it didn't work out. I expected to find the genesis for the return policy at the beginning of the modern retail age, maybe in the 40s or 50s. Maybe, I imagined, it might have started at the peak of the Industrial Revolution, maybe in the early 1800s as consumer goods became easier to buy. But the actual origin of the return policy, and specifically the money-back guarantee, well, it starts with pottery. Josiah Wedgwood was born July 12, 1730 in England. Yeah, 
Wedgwood, like the staple of fancy department store bridal registries. Wedgwood was born into the pottery trade. His father, Thomas, was a potter, and his eldest brother, Thomas Wedgwood IV, took over the family business. Josiah devoted himself so assiduously to glazes, which was as a potter he had a major disadvantage. When he was 11, smallpox left Josiah with a nasty tumour behind his right knee. The foot-operated wheel of the day was very uncomfortable to him. He gravitated towards other aspects of the business, glazes, kiln technology, labor relations, and marketing, things ripe for change. That's A.N. Wilson, a prolific writer who considers Wedgwood one of his personal heroes and even penned a historical novel based on his life. At 19, Josiah petitioned his brother Thomas to join the family business as a partner. His brother turned him down. Josiah wasn't one to get discouraged, though, so we went off to work with other potters, eventually landing a partnership with Thomas Wielden, where Josiah negotiated the opportunity to experiment with new materials and techniques as part of his work. At the time, pottery for the home was sort of like cheap Tupperware. You'd use it for a while, but you expected it to chip, crack, and quickly become unusable. It also wasn't very nice looking. Josiah wanted to see if he could make something more durable and better looking. Josiah left Thomas Wielden after five years to strike out on his own in 1759. And in 1762, met his friend and future business partner, Thomas Bentley. I know, there are a lot of Thomases in this story. Bentley would act as a key connection to both industry and society for Josiah and the upstart business. As the business got underway, Josiah's main concern was quality. He wanted to improve the quality of ceramics, develop production methods that ensured quality, and create quality designs using new glazes and methods. He succeeded at all three. By 1763, the Wedgwood Pottery Company was receiving orders from aristocrats and high society in England, including Queen Charlotte, consort to King George III, who you might know as the king who told American revolutionaries something to the effect of, You'll be back, soon you'll see, you remember you belong to me. In 1765, Queen Charlotte dubbed Josiah Potter to Her Majesty. Josiah returned the favor by renaming his popular creamware Queensware. A few years later, the Wedgwood Company received an order of 952 pieces from none other than Catherine the Great in Russia. And here is where we can start to piece together the sales and marketing brilliance of Josiah Wedgwood. One might think that Wedgwood's products were able to gain such ubiquity due to efficient systems and cheap prices. Plenty of historians have made that assumption. But historian Neil McKendrick proves this to be false. Writing in an article for the Economic History Review, McKendrick explains, Wedgwood's goods were always considerably more expensive than those of his fellow potters. He regularly sold his goods at double the normal prices not infrequently at three times as high, and he reduced them only when he wished to reap the rewards of bigger sales on a product that he had already made popular and fashionable at a high price, or when he thought the margin between his prices and those of the rest of the pottery had become too great. 
Wedgwood continued to focus on quality over price, even as he sought to broaden the market for his goods. McKendrick continues. Wedgwood did not charge his pottery at what it was worth, but at what the nobility would pay for it. Wedgwood himself wrote that other potters were in quite a panic about the state of the market because of the low prices that they'd set. Low prices must beget a low quality in the manufacture, which will beget contempt, which will beget neglect and disuse, and there is an end of the trade. Wedgwood knew that the elite would continue to buy higher quality pottery at higher prices, but his vision for the business extended beyond high society. We must endeavor to make our goods better if possible. Other people will be going worse, and thereby our distinction will be more evident. But in traveling from Paris to St. Petersburg, from Amsterdam to the farthest point of Sweden, from Dunkirk to the southern extremity of France, one is served at every inn from English earthenware. If he were to sell to a wider market, he needed to work on his sales and marketing technique. Having once achieved perfection in production, he must achieve perfection in sales and distribution. The first technique Wedgwood utilized we've already touched on, celebrity. He had an innate sense for maximizing every PR opportunity he had. When creamware became queensware, he had an instant marketing slogan. When Catherine the Great ordered her set, which he made almost no money on, he displayed it in his warehouse and sold tickets to view it. He also produced consumer versions of pieces from that set to capitalize on all the buzz. Any new design or color would trickle down quickly from the elites to the merchants to the general public. Wedgwood learned that he could maintain the company's celebrity reputation by creating mass market versions of the finer, more expensive pieces they sold. Similarly, Wedgwood followed the arts and fashion market so that he could design pottery that fit the prevailing trends. He and the company expertly balanced timeless quality with responsiveness to the market, a feat that few companies today are capable of despite access to TikTok and Google Analytics. The next marketing technique Wedgwood pioneered was product placement. He befriended artists and either outright commissioned paintings of his pottery or convinced them to include Wedgwood wares in the background of their portraits. Wedgwood also opened a self-service retail store to cater to the wider market, a very unusual move at that time. It displayed both higher-end goods set apart to show them off and lower-end goods at easy reach to ease the buying process. He used carefully stage-managed exhibitions and product launches to maximize the impact of new collections. He pioneered free shipping, media strategy, direct marketing, and the money-back guarantee. In an article for the New York Times in 2009, Judith Flanders wrote of Josiah Wedgwood, quote, It wasn't pleasure at past achievement, but instead determination to understand why success had come about so he could build on it. Selling was an intellectual pleasure, an art form. Selling was an intellectual pleasure, an art form. I love this characterization. In all the research I did on Wedgwood, I didn't find anything that made his sales or marketing techniques, including the money-back guarantee, 
seem manipulative. He seems to have simply taken pleasure in finding ways to put the best work he could in as many hands as he could. For some, that meant the finest one-of-a-kind commissioned pieces. For others, that meant providing efficiently made quality goods at lower prices. Interestingly, Wedgwood also paid his labor force above average and would take a cut in profits to keep them working at full steam when the market was a bit slow. He knew it was good for both the workers and good for the business. Wedgwood was also a prominent abolitionist in England, working actively to end slavery there until his death in 1795. From Neil McKendrick's account of Wedgwood's prowess with sales and marketing, it seems that Wedgwood did not view the customer as a mere target, or worse, as an adversary to outsmart. Wedgwood viewed his only quote-unquote enemy as competing pottery companies. And even then, he was able to work with them strategically. Now, that was a lot of story for one quick mention of money-back guarantees but it's an important story to tell about the history of refunds and return policies because it establishes the policy as a two-way relationship-building technique. Wedgwood's money-back guarantee wasn't some sort of -of get-out-of-jail-free card designed only to benefit the company. He knew that the quality of his goods could withstand the expectation of satisfaction, and he knew that accepting a return would make customers trust the company more, not less. Now, another pioneer of the money-back guarantee was John Wanamaker, who started one of the first department stores in the U.S. in 1861, as well as the department store chain that then bore his name. Wanamaker built his stores on four core principles. First, set prices. Wanamaker pioneered the price tag and eliminated haggling so that all people, regardless of class, race, or sex, would pay the same amount for a product. Second principle, cash only. Instead of offering shoppers credit, Wanamaker eliminated the risk of people defaulting on their payment plans. Third principle, money-back guarantee. Wanamaker wanted to be known for standing by the quality of the goods his stores sold. Fourth principle, cash back. Instead of offering store credit, Wanamaker made sure that since you paid cash, you'd get cash back if you needed to return an item. Like Wedgwood, Wanamaker was focused on building a relationship of trust with shoppers. They both transferred risk from the buyer to the seller to make it easy for people to say yes to a purchase. That's the philosophical basis of any money-back guarantee or refund policy. Or it should be. Today, we tend to take return policies for granted, whether we're shopping in brick-and-mortar stores or online. Direct-to-consumer retail brands have utilized exceptionally generous return policies to entice shoppers to give them a try. For example, Casper offers a 100-night risk-free trial on its mattresses, or Athleta offers a give-it-a-workout guarantee on its clothing. 
Return policies and money-back guarantees started as a way to build trust with customers and transfer risk from buyer to seller, as we saw with Josiah Wedgwood and John Wanamaker. Today, though, return policies are part of a strategic shift in understanding the buyer's journey. Typically, we think of the buyer's journey in terms of discovery, evaluation, and purchase. Maybe you find a brand via an ad, poke around on their website for a while, do some research, and then decide to make an order. You might include post-purchase follow-up, repeat purchase, or referring friends as part of the journey, too. In an article for the Journal of Retailing, researchers assert that not considering returns or refunds as an integral part of the buyer's journey is a missed opportunity for marketers. They write, Increasingly, Product returns are a major part of the customer journey. Returns can facilitate cycling back to earlier stages in the journey or can become part of the story that the customer later tells friends or posts to review apps. Again, direct-to-consumer brands pioneered new approaches to return policies. Warby Parker and Stitch Fix make returns part of the way the customer interacts with the company. They incentivize trying things out and make it as easy as possible to return unwanted items. Warby Parker will send you a box of frames for you to try on in the comfort of your home absolutely free. Stitch Fix will send you a box of clothing for a small styling fee. Pay for and keep what you like and return anything you don't in the provided envelope. Patagonia, Zappos, and Running Warehouse have incredibly generous return policies that act as a sort of safety net for buying things online that once might have been an in-store only kind of purchase. So how does a brand decide on its return policy? The researchers cite two types of return system errors that can help us conceive of how to construct a return policy. The first type of error is rewarding returns to claims that don't justify a refund. For instance, imagine I buy a dress for a big meeting. I tuck the tags away and wear the dress to the meeting. I then return the dress to the store and get my money back. To be clear, I am way too much of a rule follower to actually do this. The second type of error is denying returns to claims that do justify a refund. In this case, I buy a lawnmower. The next day, I go to mow the lawn and the mower stops working when I'm only halfway through. I take it back to the store because it is clearly defective, but the store won't give me a refund because they claim that I broke it when that's not the case. Ideally, a return policy should balance these two types of errors. We want to prevent giving unjustified refunds as much as possible. But we also want to ensure that we don't anger customers by denying refunds for genuine reasons. However, what's ideal isn't always operationally feasible. And so return policies tend to skew either toward type 1 errors or type 2 errors. Either you end up giving some refunds that weren't justified more often, or you end up denying some refunds that were justified more often. According to the researchers, stores should consider which way their returns policy will skew relative to their marketing strategies. So the way I see it is any marketing strategy that casts a wider net where purchases happen fast with the pressure of urgency requires a return policy that skews heavily toward offering refunds 
even if they're not always justified. A marketing or sales strategy that is meticulous, slow, and personal can skew toward the more cautious approach. While that means that most online service businesses would do well with a stricter policy, online course and digital product businesses, especially those supported by affiliate marketing, deadline funnels, or launches, should skew toward a lenient one. However, that's rarely the case in reality. So far, we've established that return policies and money-back guarantees show that the seller stands by the product they sell. They transfer risk from the buyer back to them as the seller, and they can be seen as a vital trust-building component of the buyer's journey. Return policies and money-back guarantees can be seen as much as marketing as they are customer support or legal guidelines. Now, if all that's true, what the hell is going on with refund policies in the online business space? Now, I want to acknowledge first and foremost that I'm mostly talking about businesses that sell digital products, ebooks, online courses, templates, etc., rather than service-based businesses. But even if you're a service provider, I think there's going to be something here that helps you think about your own business's policies. Here's a disclaimer that seems to appear on millions of web pages, at least according to a quick Google search. Quote, your success depends entirely on your own effort, motivation, commitment, and follow through. We cannot predict and we do not guarantee that you will attain a particular result and you accept and understand that results differ for each individual. Each individual's results depend on his or her unique background, dedication, desire, motivation, actions, and numerous other factors, unquote. Now, while these lines are from an earnings disclaimer rather than a refund policy, they form the justification for incredibly strict refund policies. Here's one such policy. Quote, company follows a do-the-work refund policy, which means client must include all required completed coursework with any request for a refund. If client requests a refund and does not include all required coursework within 90 days of enrollment, client's refund will not be accepted. All refunds are under the sole discretion of the company. We are about honesty, fairness, and customer satisfaction. We have no problem issuing a full refund if you've actually tried your best and done the work, but the course was not fitting for your business and or business goals. End quote. All right. I want to be gentle yet firm here. Being asked for a refund sucks. Just thinking about it makes me want to cry. Seriously. When someone asks for a refund, it feels like they're saying, you suck, and trying to take food out of your kid's mouth at the same time. I put a ton of work into the products I've sold over the years. I stood by them all, and every refund request I received was like a stab through the heart. So I truly understand trying to guard your business, and let's be honest, guard ourselves against refund requests. But between the disclaimer I read first and the refund policy I shared after, 
This is inhumane treatment of our customers. I believe our ego and our sense of self-importance really get in the way of running humanized businesses to the point that it really can pollute business. That's Regina Anijanu, founder of Digital Business School Online Outsider. And I speak from personal experience of allowing ego and a sense of self-importance to pollute friendships and mess up my communication and not being able to like see it for what it was until after the fact. Regina and I have both been around the online business space for a long time, and we've seen some stuff when it comes to refunds. Regina told me that one of the first places she saw the tide turn on refund policies in the online business space was when a major business influencer shared their strategy for reducing refunds on their program from 20% to about 3%. Here's Regina again. The strategy, if you will, and that is in quotation marks, is to make customers work for the refund in order to lower your refund rate. So now customers need to complete worksheets and or maybe, you know, you've seen online people requiring you have to do this many modules and submit your work from those modules. You have to get on a call with one of our coaches or specialists and, you know, explain what went wrong, why you aren't getting value out of it, and almost kind of do this deep dive with these not trained therapists who are getting into these deeper issues that are maybe, quote unquote, your limited thinking that are keeping you from enjoying or getting the full value out of this product. So it really made me so upset that there wasn't a lot of like, oh, let's take personal responsibility. Let's figure out how we can build a better program so that people aren't having a fifth of your customers ask for refunds when you are providing these kind of knowledge-based things. It's it's like, it's a wild thought. And I it, it just didn't seem like there was any kind of personal responsibility. It's all, we're gonna make it harder for the customer. We're gonna put it back on the customer. Imagine if J. Crew required you to submit pictures of yourself in the pants you wanted to return. Pictures with at least three different pairs of shoes and three different tops, just to prove that you tried your best to make the pants work, but they just don't. Or imagine if Amazon required you to submit a book report on the main points of the book you wanted to return, as well as a thorough analysis of why it wasn't a good fit for you. Or what if the Gap told you that you couldn't return the shirt you purchased because it's not the size of the shirt that's the problem, but rather the size of your body? Look, obviously, these are ludicrous examples. You wouldn't stand for it. You probably wouldn't even shop with a brand that had policies even remotely similar to these. Thousands of small businesses have refund policies exactly like this. And here's the thing. Each of those retail companies incur significant costs when you make a return. They have to have staff to accept and process the return. They also have to repackage and restock the item if they can even sell it again. Online businesses do not have these kinds of expenses while profit margins before advertising costs might be 80% or 90%. All a refund requires is a polite email response and a click or two of a button in whatever shopping cart software is being used. To 
you, you have to submit this homework. You as a grown adult human need to do your homework in essence in front of us to prove that you know why you're asking for a refund, like you need to prove this to us and or get on a call with a representative before you potentially qualify for a refund. And I think to ask a grown adult to do their homework in front of you, it, it makes sure, even though this may not be the intent, it makes sure the power dynamic is in your favor. And it puts the paying customer, I might stress the word paying there, it, it puts the paying customer in a position where they have to work hard to prove to you that their own thoughts, observations, and feelings about your product's fit for them, your, their, their own thoughts and observations about the timing of the product being right or not, about how good of a fit you know, you're the way I completely agree with Regina here. This kind of refund policy takes a situation in which the power dynamic is already in favor of the business owner, where the business owner has more information about the product being sold than the buyer does, and it creates a further imbalance of power. When a power dynamic is that skewed, we know it creates the conditions for exploitation and injury. Don't you know the first rule of acquisition? Yes, brother. Then say it. Once you have their money, you never give it back. Exactly. But here's a small sampling of what one business requires to process a refund. First, proof of a worksheet completion rate of at least 50% screenshots of at least six different activities from the program, proof of active participation, initiative, and responsiveness in the private Facebook community, a progress rate of at least 50% within the member portal, screenshots and proof that client has made an effort to ask questions when experiencing challenges during the program, and a minimum one-page write-up on the top three lessons the client learned from the program and a fair reason for why client thinks the program didn't work for the client's particular needs. Now, even after submitting all of that, the refund policy states that granting the refund is at the sole discretion of the company. Not only is this paternalistic, demeaning, and disrespectful to the customer, it also creates an incredible operational strain on the business. How much time does it take to vet all those documents? How much emotional labor is required in the process? How does a policy like this benefit anyone or the company? I would love to tell you that this is just an extreme example of the type of refund policies that are out there today, but it's not. Are there less egregious examples that are still problematic? Sure, absolutely. There are also plenty that are just as bad as this one. So what's really going on here? Why would a business owner ascribe to such a policy? Why might you? I know that there is an instinctual drive to want to protect yourself and what you've created. That's fair. But I also believe that one of the big reasons we see these policies pop up is that marketers want to be able to maximize sales by claiming to offer a money-back guarantee, a la Wedgwood or Wanamaker, but don't actually want to follow through on it. They want all the upside of slapping that risk-free badge on their sales page and none of the downside of actually issuing the returns. If a genuine money-back guarantee transfers risk from the buyer to the seller, this type of policy transfers any risk the seller has to the buyer. 
while the seller actually tells the buyer the exact opposite is true. And I think just because we're proud of our work, just because it took years to put together, it, it, I don't know, it doesn't justify. It seems like we're assuming our work is so complete and so perfect for everyone who might buy it that we're not making space in our refund policies for people to potentially not agree with us or to shockingly maybe think they know better about their learning style, their needs, their preferences than we do. And to me, that's ego and it's it's a sense of self-importance and it's going to trickle into other areas of, of business and really pollute the business. Owning a business and putting your creative work out into the world for sale is risky. There is no way around that. Couple that with the existential risk of business owners in the U.S. face with a lack of safety net and social supports, and it can indeed be very scary. However, it's actually never been less financially risky to go into business for yourself than it is today. It doesn't take a massive bank loan. You aren't required to sign a five-year lease for a storefront. You can do it while holding on to a full-time job if you're so inclined. Again, there are real risks, and those risks are often felt unequally across different identities. But I believe there's plenty of room to legitimately take on more risk in an individual transaction, especially if what you sell is an online course or other digital product. In 1603, a man sued a merchant for selling him an inauthentic bezoar stone. A bezoar stone is a hard mass that forms in the gastrointestinal tract of animals and was thought to have magical healing powers. The stone that the man purchased was neither a bezoar stone nor did it possess healing powers. So the man believed he was entitled to his money back. The court case, known as Chandler v. Lopez, was argued before the Exchequer Court in England. The court found that the man was not entitled to his money back because it was up to him to determine the authenticity of the product before he purchased it. The seller could only be found liable if he knowingly sold a fraudulent product or if the seller had explicitly guaranteed that it was authentic, regardless of the seller's foreknowledge. Chandler v. Lopez established the familiar precedent, caveat emptor, let the buyer beware. Caveat emptor positions the responsibility and therefore the risk of a transaction on the buyer. The buyer should expect that some sellers are trying to pull one over on them. And so the buyer should then fully vet what they are buying for themselves and assume the risk that they might get conned. Buyer beware remained the prevailing attitude of sales until the 19th century, when, at least in the U.S., contract law started to recognize implied warranty. Implied warranty simply means that sellers make an implicit assurance that what they're offering is worthy of sale and fit for use. The tables turned dramatically, though, around the turn of the 20th century. That's when department store tycoons like Harry Gordon Selfridge, Marshall Field, and our friend John Wanamaker started to push the idea that the customer is always right. Like Wanamaker's insistence on equal set pricing, the customer is always right was a complete 180 from the culture of retail at the time. So what 
is actually the best policy? Is the customer always right? Or should the buyer always beware? An article in the Merck Report of June 1915 took on exactly this question. From the caveat emptor policy, the policy of let the buyer beware, retail merchandising methods have swung around. Until nowadays, it seems to be almost the universal custom to follow the motto, the customer is always right, quoting Marshall Field as the supreme authority for the modern attitude. It has been assumed right off the reel that because the old policy was wrong, the new one must always be right. And from one extreme, the manage of most drugstores, from the smallest independent store to the biggest chain store, have jumped to the opposite extreme. But we all know that the customer is not always right. The ideal, the actual truth, is to be found somewhere between the two extremes. It is one of the paradoxes of modern methods that we pay the kicker for kicking and charge the good-natured customer for being good-natured. I agree with the author in the Merck report. The customer is not always right. The buyer should be expected to do their due diligence. And a business that's run to one extreme or another will almost inevitably fail. Many of the concerns about being generous with refunds that I've heard over the years are about the potential to be scammed. Business owners worry about people stealing their intellectual property or requesting a refund after learning what they needed to from a product. These fears reveal a foundational quandary for any business owner. Do you believe more people are fundamentally good and honest or that more people are fundamentally dishonest? Or the way business ethicist Chris McDonald put it, quote, is the relationship between buyer and seller appropriately thought of as an adversarial one or a cooperative one? Ethically, is it right for a company to think of customers as friends or foes? End quote. The answer to that question will form the basis of your refund policy, whether you know it or not. If you operate under the assumption that a large portion of the population is dishonest, you'll craft a protectionist refund policy. If you believe that most people are honest, you'll craft a generous refund policy. Despite the distinct trend toward generous retail return policies that I mentioned earlier, the opposite trend is also prevalent, especially among technology companies. Writing for the MIT Technology Review, Michael Schrage describes the strategy of many companies to constrain, curtail, confine, and control buyers or users. Instead of technology enabling greater choice or personal control, the opposite has happened in the name of data and profit. Schrage writes, quote, People procuring innovative products and services are discovering that their ability to pay matters far less than their willingness to behave the way vendors want. Now, for a quick reality check, Trage wrote this article in 2003. Over the last 20 years, his analysis has become only more accurate. This same strategy of control is found in many online businesses' refund policies. These policies imagine a world in which all buyers have the same circumstances as the seller. The appropriate amount of time, the right access to people or money, the same eye for opportunity. If those same circumstances don't exist, and they never do, then the seller requires the buyer to work toward those circumstances. If the buyer doesn't or can't, then it simply isn't the seller's fault if the product doesn't work or it isn't accessible to different learning styles 
or the buyer's kid gets sick and can no longer make time to complete a course. Here's Regina again. Some of these refund policies that seem so out of touch and or worse, they may actually create like this unsafe, unsettling environment for customers. I think they come from the business owner having this set of life experiences, very valid life experiences and this, you know, worldview that they've developed and this business owner probably has certain abilities and skills and level of comfort in communicating in certain ways such that they think everyone else can communicate in those ways just as easily or quote unquote, it's not a big deal. And the reality is it's it's not considering the many people, large number of people who communicate differently, have different needs are not as comfortable. They, they may not feel comfortable answering these questions in this kind of like exit interview of why this thing didn't work for them. They may not feel comfortable sharing their work or having to go through this process to prove that something does that mean. These are tough luck refund policies. They assume an adversarial relationship with a dishonest or lazy customer. These policies have no interest in accounting for the uncertain and often openly hostile world we live in. They have no interest in a change in family needs, a lack of accessibility, a different learning style, or the structural inequities that so many buyers face. A tough luck refund policy is incompatible with running a justice-oriented, inclusive business. Now I get it. There are dishonest customers out there. Retail stores deal with this daily. And I think we can learn quite a bit from how they approach the task. In retail operations, it's called loss prevention. Loss prevention concerns any kind of preventable loss or shrinkage in a business. Return fraud, theft, timesheet fraud, etc. The cost of shrink isn't only the cost of the product in question. The cost of shrink also includes time spent actively dealing with the situations in which shrink occurs and not dealing with whatever the other priorities for the business are. And so a business is always asking, how do we balance the cost of our time and attention against the cost of loss? In other words, there is an opportunity cost in dealing with a refund process. If you're spending an hour trying to figure out if a refund request is fraudulent, that's an hour you could be doing something else. Some loss is acceptable if it means that time and attention is put toward generating profit elsewhere. A retail business will establish a budget for shrink, say 1% of total sales. So if a store does $1 million per year in sales, they budget that they'll lose about $10,000 to shrinkage. If the store comes in under that, awesome. But they don't worry about loss operationally until it crosses that threshold. If a store is below 1% shrinkage without security guards at the front door and extra staff to keep an eye on customers, then it doesn't need security guards or extra staff. If it's below 1% without a strict return policy, it doesn't need to implement a strict return policy. The store simply accepts that that 1% lost is a cost of doing business. I think we can use the idea of loss prevention and shrink to think about refunds and other policies governing purchasing in online businesses as well. Let's say you have a workbook for sale. It's a PDF download. 
you might worry about people sharing it with their friends or downloading it and selling it themselves to undercut your business. And one way to handle that is to create a bunch of hoops for buyers to go through to access their purchase. You also put a bunch of hoops between unhappy customers and a refund. You've got your workbook locked down. The security guards are ready to tackle anyone who looks shady. But what percentage of buyers do you actually believe are dishonest? Let's say it's 1% to borrow the number from the retail industry. Frankly, I think that's way too high, but we'll go with it. That means that every 100 times your workbook sells, it sells one time to a dishonest buyer who shares it with a friend. If the workbook is $20, that means you've missed out on one $20 sale. So instead of $2,020 you could have earned as a result of 101 people accessing the workbook, you've made $2,000. Even if we look at much more expensive online courses, the math is the same. If you've sold a $1,000 online course to 100 people and one of them shares their login information with a friend, you make $100,000 instead of $101,000. And so the question becomes, how much more work does it take to prevent that 1% loss? And is it worth that amount of money? Further, if the precautions you put in place make it harder for people to buy or damage your brand's reputation, are you actually losing out on more than that 1% because you've forced lower sales numbers? Further still, is the emotional cost of fighting a refund request higher than the cost of actually providing the refund. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand that just about every situation is more complicated than what I've just described. But I also tend to believe that most situations are less complicated than business owners imagine them to be. It's often helpful to boil things down to simple numbers to see just what kind of financial impact we're talking about. The fear and anxiety of loss can be much bigger than the loss itself. Which brings us back to McDonald's question. Is the relationship between buyer and seller appropriately thought of as an adversarial one or a cooperative one? Ethically, is it right for a company to think of customers as friends or foes? Or do you wanna operate your business as if every customer is a potential fraudster? Or do you wanna operate it with the fundamental assumption The customers are honest and mean well. So what's the alternative? How do we move forward with refund policies that support inclusivity? I have some thoughts, but before I get into it, I want to clarify again that I'm mostly speaking about digital products, memberships, and courses here, not one-to-one service-based businesses. I believe that service-based businesses should have flexible policies around refunds or work stoppages, but the options aren't as cut and dry as I believe they are for leveraged offers. First, business finances should be managed to ensure that refunds are never a matter of paying the bills or not. Ideally, you wanna be able to get a refund request, shrug and say, that sucks, and then click a button to send back their money without batting an eye. If all of the revenue you're generating in your business is going to pay your bills, digital products are probably not the right model for you, at least not yet. 
Services, which are inherently less returnable, are going to provide you with a lot more and a lot steadier income quickly. Before you launch a digital product, you should have the financial runway to make revenue generated by that product hands off for whatever refund policy you have in place. That means you don't need the money from that launch until after the refund policy period has passed. I often hear that people can't afford to offer refunds, but that should be a clue that the business model you're trying to operate isn't right for your current situation or your pricing strategy is off. Does the business model you currently use allow you to offer refunds on digital products without financial hesitation? And if not, how could you generate a steady, predictable stream of revenue to alleviate that anxiety? Second, we need to normalize refunds. That might sound like a radical idea, but refunds are a normal part of doing business, especially in the 21st century. We expect the chance to return a product for just about any reason, given some basic guidelines. Our customers come to us with that same expectation. Just because we're a business of one or a few doesn't change that fact, nor should it. Now, I understand that someone asking for a refund feels like a personal affront. It hurts. So I think normalizing refunds also requires us to find ways to take the sting out of it. When I was running the What Works Network, we experimented with a number of refund policies and guarantees. Where we landed was that you could request a refund within the first 30 days for any reason. And we stated upfront that we knew the network wasn't the right fit for everyone's learning style, work schedule, or strategy. And that a new member might not realize that until they gave it a try. With that policy in place, a refund request wasn't about how bad the product was or how deficient I was as a person. A refund request was just an acknowledgement that it wasn't right for the member. We were also proactive in trying to help people determine whether the network was a good fit for them. We had a hands-on onboarding process, which means it actually cost us labor to get a new member up to speed. That was shrink if a new member then requested a refund, but the hands-on process turned new members into highly engaged, active members very quickly and significantly reduced refund requests. So taking the bet on that cost was more than worth it for us. Now, publicist Dana Kay told me about a way she's normalizing refunds in a really fun way. I've taught online classes for years, but the biggest struggle was getting people to actually watch the videos and put their newfound knowledge into action. Then of course, you'd have the people who buy the course, don't actually take it, then ask for a refund months later. That's when I came up with the 28-day PR challenge, a challenge that would help authors secure media coverage for their books in just one month. The urgency was baked into the offer, but I anticipated there would still be folks who signed up, didn't do the work, then ask for a refund at the end. I know my methods work, as long as participants actually follow the steps. So I decided to turn my refund policy on its head. Rather than offering refunds to anyone who asked, usually the folks who didn't end up participating, I decided to offer refunds to anyone who won the challenge. At the end of the 28-day challenge, all participants receive a form to either link or upload a screenshot of the media they secured. 
anyone who secures media coverage for their book receives a full refund. Think about it like this. If you paid me $129, which is how much the challenge costs, but you could get it back whether or not you participated, would you be as motivated to do it? What if you paid me $129 and knew you'd get it back if you did the work? I've run the challenge three times now, and we have an 85% success rate. The 15% of people who don't succeed are the ones who end up not participating. So yes, it means I give a lot of refunds, but it also means that 85% of participants see that my process works and end up sticking around in my monthly membership community, which ends up being far more profitable in the long term. How could you normalize refunds in your own business? How can you tell a different story about why someone might request a refund? Third, granting refunds should be fast and easy. Fighting a refund request costs money, time, and emotional labor. In other words, not offering easy refunds is expensive. As I was researching this episode, I started to think about what a self-service refund process might look like. When you have to return something to Amazon, for instance, there's an automated process from request to shipping to refund. What would it be like to offer something similar? Now, that's a thought experiment, not a recommendation. But let's say you're selling that $20 workbook we looked at earlier. It has the potential to be a huge lead generator for your larger product. So you want as many people to give it a go as possible, knowing that it might not be right for everyone. Imagine if people could pay for the workbook, download it, give it a try, and then, if it wasn't the right thing for them, fill out a simple form that starts an automation for a completely hands-off self-service refund. Does this create the potential for more fraud? Yeah, absolutely. But it also creates the potential for significantly more leads and conversion to a larger offer. And it could help you build a radically trustworthy brand. Again, offering self-service refunds isn't a recommendation. It's a thought experiment. Although if you try it or you've already done it, I'd love to hear how it went. Now, the first three recommendations around refunds all lead up to the fourth. Self-love, self-acceptance, and confident detachment. Here's the thing. A refund request is not a referendum on your self-worth, your expertise, or your creative work. They're also not a referendum on the customer's self-worth, commitment, or hustle. Refund requests happen for all sorts of good reasons. Schedule changes, responsibility changes, an unexpected move, a dream job offer, a significant financial need, Many tough luck refund policies explicitly disqualify refunds for any of those reasons. And since women and people of color are more likely to have to respond to changes like this, it means these refund policies disproportionately disadvantage them. Managing your business finances to allow for refunds of this kind is an act of self-love, self-acceptance, and confident detachment. It's also more inclusive of the diverse experiences of your customers. Offering refunds quickly and easily without having to prove anything is also an act of self-love and confident detachment. And it destigmatizes requesting a refund for a variety of reasons so that the customer doesn't feel like it's a personal failing on their part. 
Now, this is what I want to leave you with. The way you manage your refund policy says more than you know about how you see your customers. Are they wallets or are they people? Do they deal with circumstances outside their control or are they lazy? Are they dishonest fraudsters just waiting to get something for free? Or are they honest people taking a bit of a risk in buying from you? Decide whether the customer is a partner or an enemy. Decide on the relationship you want to have with them as people, and your refund policy will become crystal clear. I'll be back in two weeks with the next installment of Context Clues. I'm going to dive into doing what you love. I'm going to ask some tough questions about the role doing what you love plays in late-stage capitalism and the future of work. Plus, I'll dig into the recent Etsy seller strike, the emerging class known as the precariat, and all the extra work it takes to make a living as an entrepreneur today. If what works is helping you think differently about how you're navigating the 21st century economy, please share the show with a friend. The easiest way to do that is through Podlink. You can find the show at pod.link slash whatworks, and that page will allow anyone you share the show with to easily open their favorite podcast app and start listening. That's pod.link slash whatworks. What Works is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. This episode was edited by me, Tara McMullen, and Marty Seafelt. Our executive producer is Sean McMullen. What Works is recorded and produced on the ancestral homelands of the Susquehannock people. The Yellow House is located on the unceded land of the Katunaha Nation. <laughs>